0: Invite you to open your Bibles with me to First Corinthians fifteen. First Corinthians fifteen. We're going to be looking at verses thirty-five through forty-nine tonight. And as you open there, um, I think this will probably be my my last time uh, standing up here. And so, while I have the opportunity, I just want to. Uh, publicly say thanks to you all. I know most of you aren't actually in this room right now, but uh, Tessa and I, our family, has been so tremendously blessed by the three years that we've been a part of Harvest, and uh, each of you, in in different ways, have been uh, just a great encouragement to us. And so, thank you, thank you, and uh, we. Just thank and and praise the Lord for you and for the work that he's doing here. So, with that, let's um, come to the Lord's word now. Beginning in verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord, what a wonderful text this is. We confess, Lord, it is a difficult text in some ways. And yet, Lord, it so wonderfully sets forth the glory of our Savior and the glory of our hope as believers. And so we pray as we would come to it that you would send your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we know that there is no prayer you delight in answering more than this. Show us Jesus. Open our eyes to see Jesus. We would see Him. We pray in His name. Amen. The well-known atheist and scientist Stephen Hawking once wrote these words. He said, however bad life may seem, there is always something you can do and succeed at. While there is life, there is hope. While there is life, there is hope. Hawking himself was a living testament of these words. In his early 20s, he was diagnosed with a motor neuron disorder. It caused his entire body to be paralyzed so that he wasn't even able to speak anymore. Life got bad for Hawking and yet even in the midst of the badness, Hawking found something to do and succeed at. He wrote a New York Times best-selling book and through his scientific theories Uh, He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, one of the, the highest honors that someone could be given in our nation. But in 2018, Stephen Hawking died. He had hope when life was bad because at least there was something he could do and succeed at. But what about when life was no more? Hawking's words might be encouraging to the young optimist who is oblivious to his mortality, but they're not encouraging to someone who is facing the grave. And as we've been reminded through this pandemic, all of us will face the grave. We are incredibly fragile people. Is there hope only in this life? Is despair the only rational response to the grave? Our answer to that question depends entirely upon what we believe concerning the resurrection. If the dead are not raised, then yes, we ought to say with Hawking, while there is life, there is hope. But if the dead are raised, then we can say that there is hope even when we find ourselves in the grip of death. The Christian's resurrection hope is Paul's consuming preoccupation in 1 Corinthians 15. Some within the church at Corinth were questioning, possibly even denying, we're not exactly sure, but but at the very least questioning future bodily resurrection. The popular philosophy of the day Greek philosophy taught that while the soul went on to live forever, the body at death went into the ground to decay and that was the end of it. The great goal in life, according to the Greeks, was to be freed from the prison of the body. And Paul here in this chapter takes up his pen to war against this idea. He takes up his pen to argue for The future bodily resurrection of believers. And he argues that this future resurrection is guaranteed by the fact that Christ himself has been raised bodily. That's really his first argument. And then he turns in the passage before us tonight to respond to some potential objections to the nature of the resurrection body. You see that in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? On the surface, these questions may appear innocent, but they're not. They're not innocent questions. Our tone of voice, where we place our emphasis, our facial expressions, all of these things interpret the questions that we ask. So if you were to invite me over to your house for dinner and you were to set a prime rib before me, I might ask this question, you made this for me? My question would be intended to express gratitude for for this great meal that you have made for me. But, but let's say, same scenario, this time I'm a vegetarian, and you set this big juicy slab of meat before me, and I ask the same exact question, but with a different tone, different emphasis, different facial expression, you made this for me? And suddenly my question expresses anything but gratitude. Now, when we come to questions like the ones in our text, our problem as readers is that we can't hear the tone or the emphasis or see the facial expressions of the one who's asking this question. So how do we know whether this is a good question or not? Well, we know by the context, the context Makes it very plain because Paul responds in verse 36 by saying this, You foolish person. Now, if someone's asking an innocent question, just inquiring about truth, you don't call them a fool. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. The fool scoffs at bodily resurrection. To the Greek, the idea of a dead corpse being raised was repulsive. Why would anyone want to live in a resuscitated corpse for all eternity? What could be the result of a rotted cadaver being raised? Certainly not anything that is appealing or desirous. That's the kind of mindset that's undergirding these questions. This is the mindset that Paul is here addressing, a mindset that had begun to infect at least some in the church at Corinth. And Paul, in response to these questions, really sets forth two arguments. And the first is this, bodily resurrection is the total transformation of our natural bodies. Bodily resurrection is the total transformation of our natural bodies. These skeptics were assuming that the the resurrection body was really no different than the natural body. It was simply the patchwork of scattered atoms from a decayed corpse. But Paul refutes this misunderstanding. And he does so, notice, not not by resorting to philosophical or scientific speculation. He does so by pointing to creation. Nature is full of vivid illustrations. And Paul is the master preacher. He knows how to use an illustration powerfully to get a point across. And he begins in our text with the illustration of planting seeds. Look at verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So this is something that we all understand. A seed, if it is to sprout into a full-bodied plant, must be planted in the ground and it must die. And when a seed sprouts up from the earth in an act of resurrection, it is given a particular body. It's no longer a bare kernel. The body of a full-grown tomato plant is vastly different than the tomato seed that is planted in the ground. Paul stresses here that it's God who has made all these different kinds of seeds and has decided what kind of body each seed will have. This bodily diversity, Paul says in verse 39, is also seen among humans and animals. He says, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Our bodies are vastly different than that of animals. Husbands, I want you to imagine for a moment that as you're driving home from church tonight, You reach over for your wife's hand, only to feel a feathery wing or a scaly fin. You would scream. Our bodies are vastly different than that of the animals. And and not only is that the case, but Paul goes on in verses 40 and 41 to say that there's not only a difference among these earthly bodies— But there's also heavenly bodies. There's the sun and the moon and and the stars. And these bodies are vastly different than earthly bodies. And each is given a different measure of glory by God. Now what's Paul's point here? What is is he getting at? His point is this. That if God has created all of these different kinds of bodies, then it's not unrealistic for us to think that he created one type of body for human life in this world and another type of body for human life in the world to come. And that's why in verse 42, Paul takes his illustration and he applies it directly to the resurrection of believers. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. So here's what he's saying. Saying the seed planted in the ground is vastly different than the plant that springs from it. Even among the plants that spring from seeds, there's, there's a vast difference of bodies. Human bodies are vastly different from animal bodies. Earthly bodies are vastly different than heavenly bodies. And so too, the dead body rotting in the ground is vastly different than the resurrection body. The resurrection body is not a resuscitated corpse. We're not going to be like the walking dead, like some kind of half-living zombie. It's not a, a patchwork of decomposed flesh. It is of a different nature altogether. Drawing upon the imagery of seed sowing, Paul sets forth three fundamental contrasts between these two types of bodies. See that in verses 42 and 43. Paul begins by saying that our natural body is perishable. It's perishable. And kids, you understand what this means. When something is perishable, that means that it doesn't last forever. When you buy a gallon of milk at the grocery store, it it has a date on it. It has a shelf life because milk does not last forever. And Paul is saying here that there's a shelf life on the natural body. The natural body doesn't last forever. God has numbered its days. He also says in verse 43 that this body is characterized by dishonor and weakness. This is our natural condition. We are in a weak, dishonorable, perishing body. And we've sensed this in an acute way in these days, at least I hope that we have. We are mortal. At any moment, our lives could be swallowed up by death. But notice the stark contrast here with the resurrection body. Rather than being perishable, verse 42, it is imperishable. There's no shelf life on this body. Rather than being characterized by dishonor and weakness, it's characterized by glory and power. Those who are in Christ will be raised in the splendor, might, and immortality of the Holy Spirit. And this is why in his summarizing statements, Paul calls the resurrection body a spiritual body. Look at verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, it's important for us to be clear here that Paul is not saying that the resurrection body is non-physical or non-material. Gerhardus Voss rightly points out that spiritual here ought to be capitalized. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And Paul has used this same adjective throughout his letter. He used it back in chapter 2 to speak of spiritual people, Christians. And by that, when he speaks of the spiritual person in chapter 2, verse 14, he's not, not talking about a bodiless person, but he's talking about a person who is indwelt and enlivened and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in a similar way, the resurrection body is not a bodiless body, but a body that is entirely transformed and governed and ruled by the Spirit. So Paul argues here that just as there are different bodies in earth and heaven, the resurrection body will be vastly different from the natural Believers in the resurrection will be vastly different than than anything that we can think of or experience here and now in this life. Now, it might be tempting to think that, therefore, the resurrection body is, is of an entirely different sort than the natural. That it's an entirely different body than the natural. But that is precisely what Paul does not say. It is the same body that is sown in the ground that will be raised. Look at verse 44 again. It is sown a natural body, it is raised, same body, it is raised a spiritual body. Just as there is an organic connection between the seed and the plant that springs from it. So there is an organic connection between the natural body and the resurrection body that comes forth from the grave. It is a vastly different body, but it's not entirely different. There's both discontinuity and continuity here. In heavenly glory, we will be recognizably the same. Uncle John is still going to look like Uncle John. We will be able to recognize each other, and yet, though recognizably the same, we will be wonderfully different. Resurrection, this is what Paul is teaching us. This is his first argument. Resurrection, bodily resurrection, is the total transformation of our natural bodies. Now, you could imagine at this point some skeptics among the Corinthians saying, okay, Paul, but wouldn't it be better to just be done with the body altogether? I mean, that's, that's good and fine, but, but wouldn't, wouldn't you just love to be a, a free-floating spirit? And this leads to the apostle's second arguments. And that is this that bodily resurrection fulfills God's original goal for our natural bodies. Bodily resurrection fulfills God's original goal for our natural bodies. There's actually an abrupt shift that takes place in Paul's argumentation in the middle of verse 44. It's kind of hard to see because in our English Bibles, it's right in the middle of a paragraph. It's right in the middle of a verse. But even in the English, and even more so in the original, it's, it's clear that there's a shift taking place. Paul goes from contrasting the natural body with the resurrection body to arguing that the natural body necessitates the resurrection or the spiritual body look at the middle of verse 44 if there is a natural body there is also a spiritual body to put it another way the existence of the natural body necessarily implies the existence of the spiritual body Now, if you're scratching your head wondering what in the world the Apostle Paul is talking about here, you're not alone because many have. What is he talking about? Where is he going with this? Well, he doesn't leave us to wonder because he goes on in verse 45 to explain. And he does so by quoting Scripture. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. He's quoting here from Genesis 2, chapter verse 7. And you'll remember there that a God from, from the dust, from the dirt of the ground, formed a natural body for Adam. He created Adam with a natural body and then he breathed into Adam and Adam became a living being. That's what Genesis 2.7 says. He's quoting it here. Now it's quite fascinating, quite fascinating that Paul would go here. Think about it. He's arguing for the necessity and the desirability of bodily resurrection. But resurrection assumes the reality of death, right? So in order for a body to be raised from the dead, it first has to die. In order for there to be resurrection, there first has to be death. But Paul here reaches back into covenant history into a time before death was even in the picture. He reaches back to a point before sin was in the picture. God is going to very shortly warn Adam. That if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. Dying, he would die. But but God hasn't warned him yet. And Adam hasn't eaten of the fruit yet. He hasn't sinned. And thus, death hasn't entered the picture. And if death hasn't entered the picture, then resurrection couldn't have entered the picture. So why would Paul go here? Why would he go here? Well, here's why. The reason is because what will take place in our bodily resurrection is the fulfillment of God's original purpose for Adam in the garden. What's going to take place on resurrection day will fulfill what God purposed for Adam at creation. To go back to the illustration of a seed, a seed has a particular purpose. God's created a seed not to remain a bare kernel. He's created it to sprout and to blossom into a full-grown plant or tree. And in the same way, God had a higher purpose for Adam's natural body. God, as we said, had given Adam a natural body, and before sin entered the world, this body was not marred by the characteristics that Paul speaks of in verses 42 and 43. It was not perishable, it was not dishonorable, it was not weak, but it was natural. It was created for life on this earth, and it was mutable. It had the potential to become dishonorable and weak. We understand that God entered into a covenant of works with Adam in the garden. That when, when God warned Adam that in the day that he ate of that tree, he would surely die. That, that God was covenanting with Adam. And as such, he was placing obligations upon Adam. And we understand that in the threat of death, there was implied in that a promise of life. That if Adam would have obeyed God, he would have entered into a higher state of life. Now, it would not have been resurrection life because there was no death. But God was holding out hope to Adam. He was holding out the promise to Adam of a spiritual body in a spiritual world. He was holding out hope, the the promise to Adam that, that his natural body, his mutable body, would be raised up to a higher state of life if Adam would obey. And we know that Adam didn't obey. Adam failed, and he plunged the whole human race into death. And this is where the second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes in. If you look again at verse 45, Paul says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. In the incarnation, Christ took to himself a natural body. It was a post-fall body, a body that was weak, it was perishable, it was dishonorable. This was a body that was subject to death, And Christ perfectly, unlike Adam, Christ perfectly obeyed God in the natural body. And while the first Adam plunged the whole world into death, Christ died in the natural body to defeat death. The second Adam, because of his obedience, was raised. He was raised up with a spiritual body. His natural body assumed in His incarnation has been totally transformed by the Spirit so that Paul can now say He became a life-giving Spirit. The hope of a higher state of life promised to the first Adam was obtained by the second Adam. So here's Paul's logic no, this is deep theology here, biblical theology. Here, here's essentially what, what Paul is saying. He's saying if, if you look at your Bible, and if you go to, to Revelation 21 and 22, and you read in those chapters of what is going to happen in the end, know that those things in Revelation 21 and 22 were already being held out and offered in Genesis 1 and 2. They were there. That the whole Bible is one unifying revelation of God's purpose for his image-bearing creatures. Here's Paul's logic. He's saying, if you struggle to find the resurrection desirable, look back to the first Adam. Look back before resurrection was even possible, before death had even entered the picture, and see, see this, get this, that it has always been God's purpose to raise man to a higher state of life. God never intended Adam to continue in the natural body any more than I intend my son to have training wheels on his bike when he's 21. The goal of the natural was the spiritual. The goal of the earthly was the heavenly. What is brought about in the resurrection of believers is the pinnacle. It is the pinnacle of God's purpose for mankind. And though it was forfeited by the first Adam, it has been gloriously obtained by Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. If there is a seed, there is also a full-grown plant. The seed comes first, but always with the goal of sprouting. The natural comes first, but always with the goal of reaching the spiritual. Bodily resurrection is desirable, friends, because it brings us into the state that God created us for. It fulfills his goal for humanity. What hope we have as Christians... What hope is ours? And let us be clear that this is a hope only for Christians. Only for those who are in Christ. Paul makes that clear back in verse 22. He says, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If we remain in the first Adam, we will remain under the bondage of death We will remain separated from God and the heavenly garden in which he dwells. But if we enter into Christ by faith, if we are in him, if we have laid hold of him, we can have unshakable confidence that we shall be made alive. This is what hope is, right? What did Ben call it this morning? Confidence and A expectation I think a confident expectation he said that's what we can have in Christ a confidence expectation that our natural bodies will be raised spiritually to dwell with God forever in our heavenly home beloved we don't have to shy away from the reality of death Death will come to us all. And death is a terrible foe. But death cannot rob us of our hope if we are in Jesus Christ. We shall, as Paul says in verse 49, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. The non-Christian, when he is honest, can at best say, while there is life, there is hope. He pursues meaning and purpose in the things of this life, this earth. But so, such hope is utterly fleeting because death ultimately swallows it up. What does it matter now that Stephen Hawking was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom now that his body is decaying in the ground. What does it matter that his book, A Brief History of Time, sold millions of copies now that he's dead? It matters for nothing. Nothing at all. It's a tragic, tragic thing for one to place their hope in the things of this world, only to have those things swallowed up by the grave. There's only one hope. There's only one hope that reaches beyond the grave. It's Christian hope. It's gospel hope. It's resurrection hope. The Christian does not say, while there's life, there's hope. Rather, he exclaims, even in death, there is hope, because Jesus yet lives. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the hope that is ours in the gospel, for this confident expectation and assurance that we can have as Christians of the redemption of our bodies of future bodily resurrection. That just as you have caused our dead souls to live, so too on that great day, you will cause our dead bodies to be raised immutably in glory with you forever. What an awesome hope we have, O God. We pray that you would embolden our souls with it. That you would cause us to know it and to walk in it. Lord, I pray for any here tonight, any listening tonight who are without such hope, who are without Christ and without hope, at least true hope, in this world. Lord, would you expose them? Would you show them, Lord, how empty? the things are that they are trusting in and putting their hopes in. Would you impress upon them, Lord, the reality of their mortality, the reality that after death comes the judgments. And God, would you open to them the riches of your grace in the gospel that they might lay hold of Jesus and have this unshakable confidence that they will, on that day, bear the image of the man of heaven. Oh, Lord, make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand now as we continue to worship our God. By singing, there is a higher throne.